Great. Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new uh, to the church. Uh, glad you guys are joining us. And uh, thanks again to Dave and, and Angie for being here again. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, just great to hear that a second time myself. And also, that service, just feeling like it was worshipful for me to think about how um, the gospel just truly does multiply. It expands. And, you know, we're, we are, uh, I said first service too, we're ascending church. And it comes with joys and sorrows. It's hard to say goodbye to people and, and uh, send some of your leaders, leader types. Um, it's sad to see anybody go, of course, but uh, when you're ascending church, you say goodbye to a lot of leader types, which leaves vacuums and holes in your church, and Dave and Angie left a lot, uh, a big hole behind, as well as our other church planners, missionary types that we've sent over the years, um, but uh, just so good to see, uh, see you guys back, and praise God for the gospel going forth and running like it always does, and multiplying and growing in different areas of our of our planet. So um, we are in, as Peter said, uh, Genesis right now, a series in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So if you want to turn there, uh, am I humming there? Is that me or is that, I don't know if I can do anything. Okay. Sound okay to you? <laughs> um, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, it's in the Pew Bibles, page three, easy to find. Uh, if you got your own Bibles or devices, that's fine as well. This will be on screen, but um, a couple uh, words here by means of recap. If you're just joining us or if you're new to the Bible, uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings. Uh, it tells us the story of how God made the, the, the world and everything in it, the universe in six days, and the seventh day he rested. And it tells us the story of how sin uh, infiltrated uh, through uh, satanic means, uh, how it, it infiltrated human hearts, and how that seeped into every nook and cranny of, of creation, cursed everything, and how God set out to redeem it, though, and stay committed to it and ultimately send his son into it to absorb it all, to kind of take on judgment himself so that he might substitute himself for sinners. Uh, substitution's a big, big theme uh, in, in the Bible. We're seeing that already play out in whisper-like fashion here in Genesis, um, but uh, we'll see it more explicitly as the story uh, goes on. So as it's been happening here then in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates the world. He makes mankind especially in his image, and at some point, we don't know when, he makes angels, uh, some of whom rebelled against him by tempting, or uh, jealous of him, but also tempted humanity away from God uh, as well. So it's kind of partially their rebellion. It wasn't just that uh, Satan and his angels wanted to rebel against God uh, themselves. They, they wanted to rebel by uh, luring away kind of the pinnacle of his creation, which was uh, humankind. So it, in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at that in detail. Last two weeks, which if you are uh, new to the Bible, I'd highly recommend you just read and enjoy it and, and dig deep into that. Listen to our sermons online if you'd like or talk to one of us over coffee. Uh, as we said then, and we'll keep saying, especially in the next few weeks, understanding that portion of Scripture is one of the most important things you can do biblically and theologically. Uh, it, it is as fundamental as learning how to bat to play baseball and uh, knowing how to bat to play baseball effectively. Knowing the problem of the Bible effectively dictates how you view and read and adore the solution. And so if we get the problem wrong, we'll get the solution wrong. You can't have a proper understanding of the solution and then mess up, or the problem and mess up the solution and vice versa. So, um, so getting this really right uh, is, uh, is crucial. And so we looked at that. We looked at how in detail how uh, Satan initially tempts people away from God by, and there's this tree God says don't eat from, and it's, it's named, it's labeled. He says, don't eat from the fruit of this one tree, which was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of morality, essentially. So uh, Satan said, he, he lured them to it, he talked to Eve, and basically said, you can be like God if you eat from this tree. You'll know the difference between good and evil like God. 
You'll, you'll, you'll grasp for morality. You can do it. It was kind of a Nike thing, just do it. It was, uh, you have the ability inside you if you just reach for it and grab and eat uh, and partake. Uh, you will rise and ascend. And this is, of course, what Satan's wanting to do too. He's jealous of God's power and he's uh, luring people into this as well. We've all been born into this idea of becoming our own gods and so forth. Uh, but ultimately, with the end goal, to dethrone God and put ourselves up on that throne. Or rather, put Satan himself up because we're following his lead here. And that is actually what Satan's wanting to do is to use us. He's the great user. Uh, God is the great lover and the great servant and the great giver. Satan is the great user. He hates you. Uh, and so his lies uh, come with this kind of enticing promise, but it's just a lie. But really what he wants to do is he wants to use you for his ends of uh, dethroning God himself and, and so forth. But... Um, he would not blink at the idea of killing us. And he certainly is warned against the church at that very end. So, uh, but that's another, another thing. So sin then can be defined, going back to the name of that tree, and we looked at this, sin can be defined as simply going our own way. That's Romans 3 in the New Testament. Going, we've all gone our own way. And that might sound like it's not that big a deal, but it's treason. It really is. We've all said we're our own gods through sin. We haven't just sinned, but we've, we've dethroned the king of the universe. We've committed that high treason and and taken up arms against him and gone our own way. So it's pride. It's living by our works rather than uh, faith in God and trust in him. And so what follows in Genesis then after these first few chapters and that whole Genesis 3 discourse between uh, Satan and, and Eve and then God comes in and, and pronounces judgment but promises hope and restoration too through all of that. What follows is this, uh, this long several chapter discourse on sin corrupting the heart. Uh, on pride coming into the world more explicitly, thinking that we're something when we really uh, aren't loved by God, but really nothing uh, in, in one sense at the same time. And that turns into all sorts of, of wicked acts, the first of which we're going to read about uh, today, which is the, uh, the story of the first murder. So have that in mind. We're going to look at sin today. It's a, it's a murderous chapter. It's, uh, it's one of the first things that happens is a brother murders another brother after sin enters the world. But with this definition in mind of sin, murder's just murder's sin without question. It's an offense to God, an offense to people. It hurts people, it hurts us, ourselves, the ones who, who act on that murder. It, it, it separates us from God, but underneath the layer of that initial sin, in one sense, murder's just kind of the, the surfacey thing. Underneath it, if you pull the covers back, what's really there is self-deification. It's, it's um, I can do what I want. I'm better than someone else. It leads to anger. It leads to murderous thoughts or actions. It's it's this kind of idea. And so it's two things going on always when sin occurs. It's, it's the more obvious sin and the less obvious one. And I'm mentioning all of this because it's, you're going to see both those things seep into today's passage. Look for that. It's even as, just as I read it. It's not just the murder. It's Cain's heart, uh, the one who, uh, who murders uh, in, this, in this passage, his brother Abel. So, so let's read that now. Uh, uh, verse 1 here, we'll, we'll read verses 1 to 16. It goes past that. I'll summarize what comes after that, but for the sake of time, we'll focus here in the first 16 verses. Verse 1. Now Adam knew his, his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, so the rest of the chapter, uh, which I encourage you to read sometime on your own, uh, basically looks at Cain's descendants and focuses on a man named Lamech. I think he's about seven generations or so from Cain and just basically is there to show us how things get even worse. So Cain is bad. Lamech is very bad. The way he's brash, he murders someone as well. He's, he's more brash than Cain was about it. I mean, Cain's in a very bad spot here. We'll look at that, but Lamech's in a worse spot. So uh, part of the point there is to say that sin and, and the ongoing chapters here of basically verses, or ch- well, the whole Bible, <laughs> but uh, chapters 4 to 11 uh, in Genesis specifically show this kind of downward spiral of sin and how it's, uh, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So Lamech's story, kind of Cain through Lamech and, and their descendants kind of show this one line of sin, but then there's this, these whispers of hope given in as well. This line of, you know, uh, and we'll get to this, but line of Christ eventually, the line of the Messiah, the line of the promise, the line of God is still prompting people here uh, with uh, something salvific and with faithfulness and with the spirit. He's, he's up to something. He's, you know, it gives us hope of people aren't maybe as bad as they could be <laughs> uh, in, in a variety of other things. And so it ends actually with mention of Eve having another child kind of to replace Abel. Uh, a man named Seth. And it says right at the end of the chapter, at that time, uh, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That was the time when people started to really pray and worship. Isn't that cool? Like that's when the time, it's like this historical, biblical, historical thing of that's when people really started to pray and worship. And specifically, they'll call out on the, the name of the Lord, ask him for help, ask him for deliverance, uh, confess sin, uh, say, say they're sorry. All these things began to happen, but it's associated with Seth in this line, and, and so we'll see this today a little bit, and then ongoingly throughout the series, how there's these two juxtaposed lines a lot in uh, the, the Bible, the, this line of sin, this line of corruption, this line of, uh, you know, satanic influence, but this line of God is still up to something here. He's, he's prompting people with different things. He's working by his spirit. He's allowing people to call on him, people who live by, by faith. And they're depending completely more on him rather than themselves. And so it's a wonderful way to end such a murderous uh, a chapter. But um, if, if you are new to the Bible, uh, and this is, a good, this is good news, get used to that idea. Because when you read narrative, uh, there's some really dark, nasty, bloody stuff in this book. 
sin gets really, really bad. But there's also these narrative hints in the Bible of, uh, that drive the story forward of little things like this, uh, hints of Christ ahead of time that, uh, that are inserted into the story for, for these purposes. So anyway, let's summary then of uh, the end of the chapter. Let's start uh, by looking at uh, the big question, I think, for today. It'll feed into something else. Uh, I want to basically address two things from this chapter. And the first is, why was Cain's sacrifice rejected? Uh, maybe you were wondering that as I was reading. So uh, why is Cain's sacrifice rejected here? The, the answer to this does not have to do with the type of sacrifice they brought, as is sometimes uh, commonly noted, uh, people speculate. It's not about the type of sacrifice. Uh, God is not favoring animal sacrifice here over grain sacrifice. In fact, later when he institutes a more formal sacrificial system through Moses, he, uh, he institutes grain offerings. There, there's a way for Israel to offer eventually, and as the story goes on, grain offerings. So God is very pro-grain uh, offering here. He's not anti that. It's not about the type, nor the quality of the sacrifice, but rather it had more to do with the heart of the person in question. And so we see that the way that it's worded here in chapter 4. Notice how this is worded. I'll have this on screen here too. It says, God had regard for Abel and his offering, but God did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So you see how the focus here is actually on the person a little bit more than the offering? God's having regard for a person and what the person is bringing inside them to him rather than just the content of what they have in, in their hands. So his regard is, uh, is for the, the individual, Abel here, um, and, and, not, and not Cain. So then the question becomes, well, what's going on in the hearts of, of the individuals, right? In the minds of, of Abel and Cain, what, what's differing between the two? And the answer is, and we get some help from the New, the New, the New Testament here from Hebrews 11, the answer is Abel offered his sacrifice from faith. Abel offered his sacrifice from faith, and Cain didn't. Uh, Hebrews 11.4 says, but in the New Testament, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so faith here, to be clear, is not, and sometimes our, our modern, modernistic Western minds, uh, you know, secular minds, whatever we bring uh, to the table uh, with this issue, can define faith wrong by saying faith is um, belief amidst a ton of contrary evidence. That's not faith. Biblically speaking, that's, you know, that's a definition to it. When the Bible talks about faith, though, it's not talking about it in those terms. There's a, there's a lot of good reason to believe in God. In fact, if Cain had faith here, Cain can see God for crying out loud. He's talking to him. This is, not, this is not faith as lack of evidence. He can see him. You know? It's that definition we should, we should jettison and throw out. Faith, biblically, is simple dependence on God. It's a very active idea. It's, it's like clinging to a life preserver. I, I define it to my kids that way a lot so they can understand it better um, through a word picture. It's like, it's like clinging to a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. That's faith. That's dependence. Trust. It's saying I trust someone. You can say that about some person too, right? Faith in a person, but faith in God is to say I trust, I believe, I depend. It's, it's denying self then. It's the opposite of works. It's the opposite of anything we bring. So for Abel, then, back to Genesis 4, his sacrifice was not in his mind. His sacrifice was not an act of inherent goodness. 
uh, flowing from his heart, but it was an expression of need. Abel was bringing a sacrifice as an expression of deep need. Faith-filled, I need you, save me type need towards the God of the universe. And so again, this means, then if we flip this around, look at Cain, who actually talked a lot more about in this passage. This means that Cain's heart was full of the opposite of this, right? Cain's heart was, his sacrifice was not regarded, so it means that his heart was full of the opposite of faith, which is pride. The opposite of faith, which is self-righteousness. The opposite of faith, which really, in the Bible, pits these two things against each other. They juxtapose them a lot to, to make, a, make a point. The opposite of faith, which is works. Faith and works are really polar opposites. Uh, it depends what you mean by that, but, but primarily there's a way to talk about them in a kind of a complementary manner. Uh, but we're not doing that here today. Here they're pitted uh, against each other. Because faith says God does everything. Works say I can do something for God. And so the two, are, the two are based on different mindsets. We don't see this explicit, going back to Cain here then, we're not seeing this explicitly necessarily, like Moses is not writing this down uh, verbatim, but um, we do still see it play out narratively and implicitly in one. He's the opposite of Abel, first of all, so we've got that with the help of Hebrews 11. We know this is going on, but two, this is the big thing. He had contempt and anger towards Abel. His attitude, his anger, his contempt for his little brother uh, tells us, if we kind of reverse engineer this, if we see, you know, kind of look out here and we see the, um, how he's acting, what he's saying, and so forth, we reverse engineer that, look at the heart, we know that he's operating uh, in an unfaith-filled, works-based uh, works manner. Because if you ask the question, and these two things go together a ton in the scriptures, uh, but if you ask the question, where does contempt come from? And what's the answer to that? Where does contempt for someone truly come from? The only place it comes from is from thinking that we're better than someone else, right? It's the only place, especially biblically. When you see contempt, it is a telltale sign. This is all throughout the Bible. A telltale sign people are operating based on, based on works, based on self-righteousness, based on trying to approach God on their own strength, based on thinking that something good is inside of them when it's, if there is, it's only from God, not them. Telltale sign, classic symptom. So anger here for Cain stemmed from comparative pride, which is the heart of sin, going back to Genesis 3. Think on if you guys know the story. I can't recap it now for the sake of time, but if you know how the story of Jonah ends, uh, Jonah and the fish, um, when he goes back to Nineveh and he has, he has contempt or anger for the Ninevites because he knows God's going to bless them. He doesn't want God to bless them. Well, Why? Why is he so angry there being blessed? It's because he thinks he's better. It's the only answer. It's the only, play, it's the only reason contempt would come into that situation. It's the only explanation for that type of heart, or that type of anger, sorry. Reverse engineer that, look in his heart. He thinks he's something. He thinks he's better. And they don't deserve it. But he does. And he actually talks that way. He says, I knew you would bless them, God. <laughs> it's a classic Jonah thing. I knew if I went back. I knew if I preached you know, that you, would, that you would show them mercy, because that's who you are. You're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're bounding in love and, and uh, in all of this. And, and so think about Jonah. Think of the Pharisees, if you know them in the New Testament. I'll come back to them here in just a second, how they had contempt for, for sinners. They looked at Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and said, why are you doing that? 
we're here. I'm here. We're the teachers of Israel. We're way better than they, so why aren't you having dinner with us? Contempt. Anger. It's one of the things that led them to want to crucify him. They're, they're, they're offended uh, with this. So in this way, uh, Cain is the first Pharisee, you could, you could say. And a lot of times you see this anger stemming from pride, stemming from uh, a works-based idea of approaching God, trying to work our way towards him by doing rather than resting and believing. Uh, you see all of that come out when those beneath us, so if we're in that place of holier than thou and, and contempt and all that, uh, when people beneath us are blessed more than us or beat us in something. Uh, have you ever, maybe you've even, you can think of that. Like if you feel like someone's being blessed or if they win or if they surpass you somehow. It could be a spiritual or physical thing. But you think, well, wait a minute, I worked harder than they did. I'm older. I studied harder. I've been in church way longer. But, but they're like way passing me up here. When, when that bothers you, and I know it does. <laughs> it bothers me. When that bothers you, you're in the shadow of Cain. You're in the shadow of Jonah. You're, you're, you're living in the shoes of the Pharisees, just like me and you. We're all born into this idea of thinking we're something more, more than we really are. We're self-justifiers. We're, my old pastor said, natural-born legalists all the time. It's just We're born into that idea of trying to work our way towards God, climb the ladder, add on top of this, the American idea, you can do anything you want. It's just such a bad, bad concoction. <laughs> it just really doesn't usually end well for, even in the church, uh, people can syncretize these things and it keeps us from a lot of joy and a lot of truth. So then going back to the two, these two guys, then I want to show you this. There's two lines and paths and, and ways of approaching God. There's faith and works. And I'll just read through this quick. I kind of talked about this already. So just to see it in chart form, um, on the left side with Abel, you have this uh, line of Christ idea. The seed of Eve phrase comes from Genesis 3, if you weren't here for that. But uh, this line that Jesus eventually comes from is more in line with Abel. This line of people saying, living by faith, saying God can do it with their posture and their words and their beliefs and all that. It's very God-centered. It, it looks like worship and calling on the Lord. It looks like humility. It looks like uh, them saying, God, save me. And it, looks, it, it, it equates to their righteousness. God counts that type, that way of living as being righteous before him. On the Cain side of things, it contrasts with all of it. Cain, and like all of us are born into this, uh, Cain is more the seed of or the offspring of the, the serpent in Genesis 3. The, the serpent who said, if you just reach for the tree of morality, you can do it. Be like God. Do good. It's inside you. That's the seed of, of the demonic lie the seed of the serpent, to say that. And it, and it spills over into Cain. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, if I, did I mention Lord of the Rings this morning yet, or is that first service? I didn't mention it this service? Okay, so I'll mention it now. They blur, they, blur, they blur together a lot, but it's like in Lord of the Rings, you know, reaching for that ring, uh, the ring of power, the, the one ring, which is the strongest of the rings. Uh, the protagonists have this discussion, if you guys know the story, of we could use it for good. It's forged by evil, but we could use this for good and, and, and intend it for good and destroy evil with it. But then the ones who are in their minds say, nah, but it would, it would wield such an evil within us. It would turn in us. It would deceive us. So the goal was to destroy the ring, not to grab for this ring with, this, with the desire to do good. It's the same with this fruit. 
We, we have, oh, if I just grab for that fruit with the, with the, I could do good. I could know the difference between good and evil. I could be the best moralist in the world, sink our teeth into it, but it turns in us. It, it looks like murder. It looks like envy. It ends up looking like contempt. It looks like competing with people. It looks like running over others, not putting them first, because that's defining our reality now, what we do rather than what God does for us. And to spiritualize it, it looks like religion. It just messes everything, um, everything up. And so I uh, forgot where I left off here, but on the, on the right side with Cain, it, it's this line then of works, line of self-centeredness, line of contempt and pride, the line of saying, God, look what I've done the line of wickedness. And so uh, we're going to see this time and time again, kind of a, a taste today, a bit of a teaser, because um, before the uh, sermon series is done, you're going to see a lot more charts like this, just to warn you. Um, a lot more, because um, the Bible's chock full of them, especially Genesis. Genesis is setting the stage for us. Uh, it's giving us a paradigm to read the scriptures with. There's two ways, two lines, uh, two seeds, we could say, or kind of offspring paths. One leads to Jesus, and one leads to the opposite, or Satan, or works, or um, self-justification, however you want to label it. And so, so get used to it. And a lot of times, this plays out in pairs and twins. Uh, and this is the brothers here, not twins, but you know, one of these groupings then, will, or, or people of the maybe twins set, will resemble or represent the side of faith or promise or God's work, and the other will represent man's strength. Self-deification, pride, religiousness, uh, law-centered work, uh, thinking we're something, and they'll, they'll juxtapose, they'll be different. And, and it's usually, it's kind of cool, uh, we'll see this more later, but it's usually the, the unlikely. It's, um, birth order was a big deal in this culture. Uh, it's not as much for us these days, but a big deal. So it's a lot of times the younger brother. It's a lot of times the weirdo. It's a lot of times uh, the outcast. It's a lot of times the one that we'd never choose, the ugliest. Um, the one with, who's disfigured, uh, who's not chosen uh, you know, uh, by, by people. It, it's that person that resembles this line of promise and faith, this line of Christ, this line of this is how God's going to redeem the world. It's by faith. Uh, not by works, it's by Jesus and God doing something rather than us. And so get used to that idea too. Uh, and the whole point of that is to show, again, not by strength or by might, Zechariah 4, 6 says this, not by our strength or by, by our might, but by the Spirit, by my Spirit, says the Lord. Uh, so it's not by human choice or birth order, what's expected, human reason. We could go on again. Uh, but So a little bit of a teaser today, but I want you to just kind of bury this in your mind, stuff it in your back pocket, get used to seeing this idea. We're going to see twins. You guys have read Genesis, some of you guys have read Genesis before. You know, twins come up a lot. People are just, you know, this is pre, pre uh, what do you call it? Uh, not in vitro, but people have twins a lot with what? The help of the, what's it called? Come on, you know. What's it called? Fertility, thank you. You guys, how long are you going to let me go? I just, <laughs> I'm dying up here. All right. Yeah, fertility, uh, before, before all that. But God's allowing twins to come into the world because there's two storylines, faith and works. And one represents one, one the other. So anyway, so going back to Genesis 4. To be regarded positively then by God is to have faith in him alone, not ourselves. 
That's what it means to be righteous in his eyes. It's interesting here, we're seeing sacrifice already come between God and people. People know something's wrong. These first two brothers, and they're already offering sacrifice, trying to appease, they're trying to mediate somehow, right? And, and that's a good thing, in, you know, in general. Cain does it wrong, but it's, it's a good thing. But they, they go about it differently, right? Abel's sacrifice in himself is regarded in Cain and accepted, but uh, Cain's is not. It's that perspective Cain had of, see God, this great sacrifice I've brought for you that, that condemns. In fact, later, um, Abraham in the story, if, uh, in chapter, um, oh, I'm forgetting what chapter it is, but uh, in the teens somewhere, uh, Abraham, God says through your son, I'm going to, you know, he's in the line of the promise, and I'm going to bless the world through your offspring, but his wife's 99. It's like, well, okay, I'm married to her, but I'm going to go have sex with her, um, maidservant and have a child with her and then God will have something to work with. And so he does that. Her name's Hagar, his name's Ishmael and then there's this, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he basically holds the child up to God and at least in his heart and says, God, look what I've done for you. <laughs> don't ever say that to God. Like that's, that's <laughs> things don't end well. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, but what God says to that, I mean, very graciously, I'm actually not going to bring promise in my son and redemption, salvation to the world through that child because I'm going to bring it through your, your dried up fertile wife who's been infertile for decades to show you and the world watching and all of us who are for millennia read this story, we'll get to it, will show you that it had to be by God. It had to be by promise and miracle. It had to be by faith. It had to be by God doing something. Not man, not Abraham saying, I'll take this into my own hands. I'll save the world, myself included. See the themes here? How they build and they stack on top of each other? It starts here. Uh, Luke 18, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus speaking says, um, or about him first, it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Same idea here, right, in Genesis 4. So he told this parable to, to these types of people. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other uh, who is basically a pastor of the day, the other a tax collector, a hated outcast, a sinner. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Um, the Pharisee, or sorry, uh, I fast twice a week, I give tithes, of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified or reconciled with God rather than the other. So what I like about this is Jesus teaching in this parable-like way makes it all the more of a lesson, but it's the same thing. I mean, what the lesson here is, who are you? Who am I? Are we Cain or Abel? Are we the, the, this Pharisee, uh, this religious nut job, in a sense? What a nice guy, right? I'm just so thankful I'm not like this guy right here. No, thank you, God. Uh, or this end-of-his-rope tax collector. I mean, Jesus is saying here, the 
the prostitute, the terrorist, the serial murderer, gets in. He's saved, but the pastor is kept out. That's how offensive this is, you guys. The worst, coming at the end of his rope, beating his chest, saying, God, have this is a faith-filled, able-like sacrifice of, of praise and worship to God. It's able-like, the tax collector. Pharisee is in the line of Cain, the line of the serpent, the line of works. I am like this. And you might not think, well, I do that before God, but you do. I do. We all do. We're all born into that. As Christians, you still do. I still do. God saves us out of that. All is not lost. This is actually the core of sin. So if Jesus saves us from sin, this is what he saves us from. He saves us from religion. He saves us from self-justification. He saves us from the seed of the serpent, from the line of the serpent, from the lie that you can be something. It's in here. You can do it. He saves us from that way of living, that way of thinking, that way of believing. And many other things as well. Many things that that leads that leads to. So, so ask yourself, kind of a good litmus test, you know, do you, um, if you don't think that, so don't be quick to say I'm like Abel here. I mean, by God's grace, he allows Christians to live that way. So I, I want to acknowledge that too. However, do you ever get angry at people who are favored more by God than you? Or are just kind of better at things? Are you bothered by the idea that God does not regard good works that don't proceed from faith? Is that a hard concept? It is for me. It's hard. God, because sacrifice is good. Remember that, you guys. Cain is not starting by murder here. He's starting by sacrificing, worshiping. So God's a good thing. They are good things that God does not regard because they don't proceed from faith. They don't come from the right heart. They don't come from a place of, God, I need you. This isn't doing anything for us, but I, but I love you. I, I need you. Save me. That's a faith-filled there's a way to do good, but be as, just as much hellbound as you were before. You're still reaching for that, we're still reaching for that tree of, the, of morality, like Satan wanted us to. Sacrifice here was a good thing, but it was the heart that was wrong. There's only one type of heart that God accepts. I want to make that very clear, because it's, it's clear here. The one type of heart is a heart that lives by faith. Specifically, as the story goes, in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of their sins. And that's where I'll switch to next. Uh, moving on in, in, in the story, if you're there in your Bibles, keep it open. The second piece here is God and Cain have an exchange, uh, a short exchange that highlights the idea of judgment and grace, kind of like we looked at a couple of weeks ago before Easter, and I'll um, talk about that. So a quick summary, after Cain's sin of self-worship led him to the sin of murdering his brother, God spoke to Cain, uh, which is amazing just in and of itself, kind of a gracious thing. He spoke to him uh, like a concerned, grieved, but loving father. Uh, and Cain responds to God very arrogantly. Uh, he says, not my problem, basically. Am I my brother's keeper? He could have said, could have owned up, right? But he didn't. He said, well, why are you bothering me with this? Not my problem. So very arrogantly. Uh, then judgment ensues. God pronounced, like he did for Adam, God pronounces pain, but also exile from himself. And Cain recognizes this. He says, from your face I shall be hidden. But then, then Cain says this. My punishment is greater than I can bear. It's the first true thing he said the whole paragraph so far. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, and this is, you know, if you ever see this bumper sticker, read it, just jettison it. It's not true. 
uh, it's, but it's this uh, bumper sticker that says, uh, God will never give me more than I can bear, right? Or what, is it? what does it say? It sounds so good, but it's terrible. Uh, God will never give me more than I can handle in a day, or something like that. It's garbage. It's just, what is it? It's not in the Bible. It's, it's, it's not. There's a place in 2 Corinthians that kind of hints at the idea that God will be there to open a door for us, but it's twisted. God will give you a lot more than you can handle because he wants to be there to be the solution. You're not the solution to your life. Isn't that freeing? Maybe it's humbling, a little bit of both. God will always give us more than we can handle. You can't handle your sin. That's the whole point of the Bible. He didn't, he didn't give you stuff in life so you could climb out yourself and pat yourself on the back. This is the exact thing he's trying to fight against. That's the mindset that is the antithesis of Christianity. It's what he's warring against. It's what he's bleeding on a cross for six hours among criminals for. It's hellish. It's a stench to him. We've got we to stop that. This, you know, this kind of mindset that, that robs God of glory and robs us of joy and keeps us from what the truth actually, actually is. So anyway, uh, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, yes, it is, Cain. And then he says, whoever finds me will kill me, which is interesting. He's kind of naturally here defaulting to or understanding this tit-for-tat aspect of sin and consequence, right? I killed someone. Now someone's going to kill me. Now, right here, I've answered something right here. If the Bible was karmic, if karma was the ultimate reality, what would God say here? God would say, absolutely, that's going to happen. You killed someone, now tit for tat, karma's going to kick in, and you're going to be killed as well. It's all going to yin-yang, even out, blah, blah, blah. But does that happen? Sometimes the, the, the glories of Scripture are in the absence of what's said. And here it's kind of that, but it's also what what he says, right? Uh, God would say that in a karma-filled world, but praise be to God, the universe does not operate by karma. It operates by love and grace, the essence of God's character. So he says, not so. You killed, but you won't be killed. Isn't that incredible, you guys? It's barely fathomable that at this point already, God is withholding this type of judgment and punishment, this type of karmic way of looking at the world from people. It's incredible, incredible. If you're a sinner, if you're not a sinner, then I guess it's not that good of news for you, but if you're a sinner like Cain, uh, it's like me. It's uh, really, really, really great news. The Lord here essentially says, I've got your back. I will inflict vengeance on those who kill you. In other words, it won't happen. He puts a mark on Cain to protect him before he's driven away from his presence, which that judgment still has to happen. God must punish sin, but he shows grace as well, which is just oddly beautiful thing. And we've said it before, grace is unexpected. It comes in at the weirdest times. Uh, the great theologian Bono from U2 says, love and grace interrupt the consequences of our actions. That's what love does, right? That happens on a human level. Someone hurts you, you show them love. It interrupts the consequences of those actions. You offend someone, they show you love and, and forgiveness and grace. It interrupts what's happening there. 
in the relationship. How much more true for God? Karma says it's going to come back and bite you. Grace interrupts the consequences of our actions. Karma says you get what you deserve, which, by the way, is a very bad thing biblically. That uh, sometimes you get that too. Elise and I were watching a movie. What was it? A couple of nights ago, and, and some lady in there prayed. Um, she prayed something like, God, please help us to be deservant of your blessings. And I, t- I just had to stop and just think, well, what does that mean? Please help us to be, please help us to deserve your blessings. That's a terrible prayer. Did you remember that? Hearing that? It's like, what? So, like, fast forward. But anyway, uh, grace says the opposite. Grace says, God, thank you for giving to me when I don't deserve it. But just to make that clear, if you're in a hard spot and you're thinking, well, someday God will give me what I deserve because I'm, I'm suffering now, you got to get rid of that thought too. That's not biblical. It's not true or, rea- or real. God's good through all things. And if you and I get what we deserve, we all get hell. So grace, it's a good news to say we don't get what we deserve with grace. Because we get heaven if we don't get what we deserve and we cling to Christ. So grace opposes karma and law all the way till we get to Christ, who in Revelation 3.12, it says about him that he marks us with a new name, kind of like Cain got marked as Christians, we're marked spiritually by Christ, uh, who is killed for murderers like us, so that through his death and resurrection, God says not so to those who threaten us. In Christ, you guys, God has our back. I mean, you can't put a price tag of any kind on that, right? You can't overvalue that. God, if you're in Christ, God, the God of the universe has your back. He says not so to those who threaten you. All your enemies, your own hard heart that says you'll never finish this race. Not so, he says. And even though we've sinned against him, lied to his face, lied to his face, gone our own way, murdered others with our hateful thoughts and intents and all of that like Cain, he would one day send his son to die for us. That he would take vengeance then on sin and death instead of us and the devil. You know, a son who would come in the line of Abel. Hebrews 12, 24 says, we have come, church, and all those of you who are considering becoming Christians today, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What this is saying is that there is, in fact, a greater and better, a truer and better Abel in the story. It's Christ, who though innocently slain by his brother, like Abel was, Jesus was killed by his brothers, essentially, by other Jews, has blood that cries out a better word, meaning a word of acquittal rather than condemnation. So there's similarity and contrast there. It's, it's, his blood speaks a better word. His blood says, you're okay with God. I don't care what you've done. So again, whatever karmic tit-for-tat sense there was to Cain, in Genesis 4 here, God's grace trumps. And it's whispered there, and, sorry, whispered in Genesis 4, shouted there on the cross. Where, where God says to all of our enemies, all those who threaten us, the, the idea of justice and condemnation, he says, not so. He marks us with salvation. See the good news here? That's what it means to be saved. Come to Christ, you guys, today. Come to Jesus. And... and um, Lay down everything 
at his feet, all your ambitions, hopes, and plans, and especially all the good things you thought were to your credit. Consider them garbage, as Paul says in Philippians 3, uh, for the sake of knowing Christ and him crucified and raised. That's what Paul says, is all my good works and knowing Christ crucified and raised for my salvation. He, je- he actually calls them a Greek swear word. Uh, it's probably know what I'm talking about. Crap. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Jettisons them. And then, and then he says, instead of that, that's, that's what, as a Christian, that's what I count all my good works. Not my bad works. All the good stuff for the sake of knowing Christ and him crucified. If, if the good things, if we're trying to get to God over here with these things, they're complete polar opposites. If goodness flows from our faith in Christ, that's a whole different story, but if we, if we counted them to our credit, then we're not a Christian. We are not a Christian. That's where you are today. If you think you're a Christian because you're a moralist, you're kind of, you're just a good person doing some good stuff in Jesus' name, I can tell you that you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You need to be covered in the blood of the new Abel who brings you to him. He has to do it. This is why Abel is regarded. Abel says with the sacrifice, God save me alone. End of story. Cain says, look what I've done for you. We have to set up camp over here, you guys. We have to live here all our days. Live here. This is the church where the church is. It's our mantra. Righteousness comes by faith in God. Um, You know, if if you want to change the world, I'll just end with this. My first invitation is uh, believe in this Christ. Uh, Preach him to yourself and others. And also, the only way to consider other people better than yourself is to be freed up by this one, by this one man. You know, the, the gospel says, don't worry anymore. It's not about you. You're loved. You've gotten saved by something God has done, not you have done. So be free to put other people first. You want to change the world, or let's just actually forget that. You want to change Minneapolis and Costa Rica. Start there. That's our focus. The Twin Cities here. You want to change the city. Preach Christ and Him crucified. And then put other people first. Never tire of it. In, in the, the, the spirit of the anti Cain, put other people first. You want to stab a dagger in the heart of the devil and infuse a breath of Eden into this world? Put other people first. Put other people first. Consider people better than yourself. Philippians 2. And I'm saying this to you Christians. If you're not a Christian here, um, you can't do that. Uh, As Christians, we struggle enough with this. But the only reason we can do it is because God himself is doing it in us. So Christians, come to the cross, preach Christ and him crucified, believe by faith, and then be freed up in that gospel to live a radical life that all the canes of the world, of which you used to be one, and I did, are, are, are flabbergasted by. They just don't have a category for it. Preach and then live accordingly. Um, 
Let that gospel watch over, wash over you and make you a God-centered, faith-filled, trust-filled, dependence-filled person. It's the, he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one. Uh, and, and his word never fails, so praise God for that. Uh, he always fulfills his promises, and he will, he will do it. He will surely do it. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace today in the gospel of Christ. Uh, thank you for working through the weak and uh, the unchosen, the younger brothers, uh, the outcast, the unwanted wives. We'll look at some of these themes in Genesis, how you w- work through these weird kind of improbable people types to show that that's the line of Christ. So we know it's by faith. It's not by human choice or selection or beauty or physical appearance, but it's by the, the heart of faith, the heart of trust in you that culminates in trusting in your son to, to deliver us from our sins with his blood. A whisper of that we get here with the story of Abel and how he was killed by his brother as well. Uh, thank you, God, for bringing us back into Eden. Uh, help us to respond this last song and to leave here uh, just encouraged, freshly full of faith and trust in you and leaving behind all the, even the, not just the bad, but even the good stuff we did that did not proceed from faith that is equally as stench as the bad. That's always been about you. Forgive us for reaching for that tree of I can do it alone. Save us away from that uh, into a, a new place of God, I can't do anything apart from you. John 15, 5, Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me. Nothing. May that be our song. Uh, may that be not just what we see at the cross, but what we see in our lives and our church uh, through your glory. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.